I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to this bonus episode of Three Brothers Filmcast, where Anders and myself are going to be breaking down the first season of The Book of Boba Fett, the spin-off show of The Mandalorian playing on Disney Plus streaming. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. I know that you sit on the throne of your former employer. Jabba ruled with fear. I intend to rule with respect. What did you think of this seven-episode season, which is a spin-off series of yeah. The Mandalorian, but also kind of a Mandalorian season. <laughs> we'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> like should we call it The Mandalorian season 2.5 to some degree? I think maybe that's fair. But um yeah, overall I enjoyed it. Um but it, it I will say it is somewhat uneven in its uh storytelling. It's I'm not clear that you know this is what most people expected from Book of Boba Fett, especially Although, the, you know, the first four episodes I, I enjoyed quite a bit. I especially liked uh, episode two, uh, where we see the backstory of Boba Fett and his relationship with the, the Tusken Raiders and the way that that leaned into Western movie tropes uh, and yet sort of humanized the, the Tusken Raiders and it showed kind of, if there was any sort of overarching plot that this had to do, I think was to show how Boba Fett goes from being you know, a cold-blooded mercenary who works for Darth Vader to the uh, you know potential ally that we see in season two of The Mandalorian, right? Yeah, yeah. Try so you know in so many ways, um, it's impossible for this show to escape the shadow of The Mandalorian. Not only because Mando is a variation of Boba Fett. Like, Boba Fett's the original cool guy in the armor who does, you know, he's a badass, but you don't want to think of him as too much of an evil guy, but he does kill people, and, like, he'll work for whoever pays him. Mm-hmm. So, but there's, you know, there was that, always that thing that I think exists a lot more in the expanded universe books and comics from the 90s and video games and stuff where, oh, you know, Boba Fett, he's bad, but he's not really bad. Like, he's, there's a moral code there, and we're just kind of assuming, right? Because we don't know Boba Fett as a character really at all. No, exactly. I mean, he think he has something, what, like 10, 15 minutes of screen time in the original yeah. trilogy? We get to see him as a as a kid in Attack of the Clones who witnesses his father die at the hands of the Jedi. And then I admit I have not finished Clone Wars, but I am, apparently there is uh, bits with Boba Fett in that as yeah. well. That ties into this series uh, as well. I like that you brought up the Expanded Universe thing, because for me, I really got into Star Wars fandom in the early 90s when uh, those spin-off books before the, the prequels came out, and um, you know, I, this, to some degree, especially the first, I'm going to bracket the first four episodes from the last three episodes of this mm-hmm. season to some degree. Those first four episodes, I kind of enjoyed it for its the way it felt like one of those expanded universe stories like the tales from Jabba's palace or the tales of the bounty hunters kind of bits yeah. we get hints of the, the the details of Jabba's palace the different parts of it the the sort of political and crime syndicates that rule over Tatooine 
and uh, you know it's uneven. There's some goofy bits. We can maybe we'll do uh, a bit of a rundown of what worked for us, what didn't, and that kind of thing. But you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the 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 bits of like I alluded to um, genre film references, which is something I think that Filoni and Favreau's Star Wars TV series have done a good job is leaning into something that was a complaint of mine about the the Disney sequel films, which is that yeah. their their main reference points was Star Wars movies to, to a great degree, that this is playing fully into the pulp, uh, you know, filmmaking of Westerns, uh, crime stories, and then it, it, it goes a few other places as well, but we'll get to in a minute. And we, we talked about this when we were talking about The Mandalorian Season 2, about how one of the strengths of that show is that it goes back to the things that inspired Star Wars in the first place, right? And this show, I don't think it's quite that. It kind of goes a little bit more into the things that interest Favreau and Filoni and, and Robert, Robert Rodriguez, Rodriguez yes. as filmmakers. If we're taking the first four episodes as kind of the coherent, structured part of the season, which in many ways is more modest, but is yeah. actually a pretty focused character story about how... Boba Fett can go from being this ruthless killer to this person who's kind of sick of allowing other people to call the shots for him because by doing so, it forces him to accept whatever moral decisions the other person's making. That's kind of an unspoken thing in all this. He never, oh, no, says that because Boba Fett still doesn't talk particularly that much. No, but he has his his key, (laughs) the key refrain that, you know, Jabba ruled through fear, I will rule through respect, right? That, That he's trying to set up a different, uh, set of values through which he's going to establish his leadership. And so uh, having those four episodes, having you know the flashbacks, which um, put together the pieces of him and Fennec Shan get together, how he survives the Sarlacc, how he you know gets his ship back, gets, um, and then also why you know why he has the the Tuscan outfit and the Gedriffy stick and stuff yeah. when when he shows up in Mandalorian season two, and then the show turns. Yes, where. The Return of the Mandalorian, Chapter 5, which has no Boba Fett in it. Nope. It just has Mando, and it seems to be catching up with Mando. And then see, Episode 6 has Boba Fett for two minutes, and he doesn't say anything. And it's still mostly Mando, but then it brings Grogu in again. And then Episode 7, which feels... Kind of brings the two together. Yeah, it brings the two together. Um, and it does cap off the um, initial conflict with the Pike Syndicate on yes. Tatooine. The uh, the one thing I, I was going to say about this, the, returning to the idea that this is a Robert Rodriguez series, it, I kind of, like, he didn't direct all the episodes. I think he directed three of the seven yeah. episodes, one, two, and seven. It's definitely, especially in those first four episodes, I com- people commented online, and I noted too, like, it's a little bit of a lower budget. I mean, The Mandalorian two seasons looked pretty fantastic for a TV show. Like, the, it wasn't visually notably different from the other Star Wars films that Disney has done in mm-hmm. many ways. The special effects were, were pretty top-notch, all that. Here we get a little bit... Rodriguez is a guy who like enjoys the challenge of working under a low budget. He, famously, in his uh, his book, Rebel Without a Crew, chronicling the way when he made El Mariachi for like a few thousand dollars, you know, he, he's the king of that, and in making films like the Spy Kids films, and you know, he, he has a history of working in sort of low-budget entertainment, but, you know, so we get things like the Gamorrean Guards look kind of like even more rubber suitish than they did in Return of the Jedi. I think in, in a filmmaking sense, it's two things. It's um, digital. It's extremely digital cinema. Yep. 
in the photography and so there's no um, grain thrown over everything to make it seem lived in it actually seems extremely fresh and new and so the Gamorreans are oh you know standing in sunlight bright green in their like rubbery suits and stuff and I appreciate that they're I appreciate that there's a lot of practical effects yeah. in in the show still even though they're clearly using those um, those giant screens the I, f- I don't know the exact, um, I forget the exact technical term for them, but the, the giant LCD screens that are real-time previous sequences while you're filming on set, they're essentially a digital back lot. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that the show has a lot of direct sunlight scenes because yeah, it is Tatooine. It's so when you have makeup under direct sun with a digital camera that picks up absolutely everything, it's kind of hard to mask it, and it seems like the filmmakers are just like, eh. Like, we, we threw the budget, the, the makeup's all good and stuff, but we're not going to worry about the Gamorrean guards looking funny or the Trandoshans looking a little goofy. <laughs> or, you know, some some of the stuff of when in the second episode, say, when they're, like, chasing the train and the speed and of it, the, when they're on the swoops trying to get onto the train and stuff. It's like, yeah, it doesn't seem to have that kind of A-list prestige that no. they, the Mandalorian clearly is their new, like, flagship. And this doesn't seem to have any interest in being a flagship. And that's... I think that's part of what, again, what I like about it because it's what I praised about this, what I praised about Mandalorian, and even Rogue One to an extent is um, the modest stakes, the fact that it's not a universe-ending thing at yeah. any moment. It seems to be very to these people, these communities, these specific conflicts that they have with each other. And so I don't want, you know, I don't watch an individual episode of Book of Boba Fett to have some grand realization about human beings or to really understand how pop storytelling works in a new way. I just, it's just an, an opportunity to watch um, tried and true formulas plugged into this world with these characters. It's true. But then that's the strange thing, right? With once it, the season turns yep. and in some ways gets more satisfying because it's characters we, or at least in my sense, it gets more satisfying because it's Mando, a character who's so well drawn at this point. Yeah. brings in Grogu. It kind of resolves these unanswered questions in anticipation for season three. And sets up a season three, really, clearly. But then it's also less satisfying because you've been with Boba Fett for four episodes, and you're like... And it holds that in stasis, what's going to happen, right? But but episode five, to me, also, there's a... It also, not only narratively, but, like, visually, they they spent a lot more money on it. They did, and I love the ring world that that is set on. It's one of the best. It's actually one of the best things in all the new Star Wars stuff. Totally, like a world. And again, it's very clearly riffing on Halo, riffing on Mass Effect, the the Citadel, and then yeah, Larry Niven's Ring World. And I love the the whole. um, What are they called? The Coven. Coven. What's What's the name exactly for the Mandalorians? Where they like they have their secret enclave kind of thing, right? And it's how on the it's on the lower ring, yeah. So that there's and like you, empty you, space, and you can actually get knocked out into space. Yeah, which is cool. <laughs> I love that. That's like, it's, it's clear that cool... they have to wear their helmets for like when they're underneath there as well. It's a um, very cool um, thing that builds the the actual location into these characters would want this not only because it's nobody else could go out there, but it also forces you to never take off the helmet, which is a part of their religion. <laughs> See, episode five, the Return of the Mandalorian, um, also to some degree is is more intense in the it's both emotional and visceral uh impact so like i I watch this show with my kids and it's it's fun to watch with them because the boys you know it it is fundamentally like juvenile children's storytelling in a good way 
Um, and there's the first four episodes. There's not too much super scary stuff. There's that one scene where that Ray Harryhausen uh, Kraken creature <laughs> pops, <laughs> right, and uh, <laughs> attacks. It's a clear, uh, you know, reference to Clash of Titans. Yeah. But the uh, but then you get to the beginning <laughs> of episode five, Return of the Mandalorian. And I talked to a couple other parents who were watching the show, and you have a scene where Mando <laughs> cuts through a gang of Clatuinian mercenaries, yeah. gangsters, in a butcher shop a with butcher a lightsaber, shop. literally just chopping guys apart. And it's so violent <laughs> and brutal. It's like I kind of like was taken a bit taken aback, but I also kind of loved that entire sequence. I thought it was super awesome. <laughs> I I was taken aback because for a moment I couldn't tell what time line the show was on i'm like is this until he busted out the dark saber yeah and it clicked i was like this is very mando being super brutal <laughs> and he's just, it seems to be back to where he was at the beginning of season one just completely yeah. murking guys but obviously like, well, not. you know i'll yeah. take you in warm i'll take you in cold yeah just such a good line and i just love the idea of like the the fight with the criminals in the butcher shop and then the, the bag with the head which is an image actually ironically in there's some uh cam kennedy uh illustrated Boba Fett comics uh, there's a great oh. image of Fett carrying uh, a head in a bag and the way it's kind of like dripping and like kind of so there's See, some some and there and actually that whole design of the ring world also has a strong sort of uh, feel I, at first I wasn't sure before I saw the ring part whether it was meant to be Narshada the hut the station yes. orbiting the hut homeworld in the comic books so well and which is also famously in Dark Forces the yeah. video game it's a great level which has been um, referenced already in season two of Mandalorian with the Dark Troopers, right? So it has exactly, and they're clearly drawing on all these various yeah. things. So this this man, I think one thing that Book of Boba Fett and Mandalorian do, which is really interesting, is it splits the difference between those like Gen Xer, older millennial Star Wars fans who who read the books, who who maybe lived through the original films and or the sequ- the the prequels, and younger Star Wars fans who who maybe aren't as well versed with that. And and have so it, it does a good job of uh, bringing fandom together in a weird way. Although there yeah. obviously are some things that are divisive, we'll get to later. But yeah, these this this um, this show and the Mandalorian, they both kind of are at a conflex point, right? Because it's if you're interested in if you just come to the Star Wars series through the Mandalorian, this links up to the old series of that. But then Boba Fett is the way that older fans can get into the Mandalorian series through this. So. Just to pull on the thread of the one comment you made about the concept art of like him or the, the comic book art of him mm-hmm. holding the head, Mando. I think that's like an implicit thing in the show, and it's part of the weirdness is that Boba Fett and Mando, like Jinjarin, yeah, they're the same character. Like they, they're in the sense that they're both born out of our conception of Boba Fett in the original trilogy. Yeah, and so they both are serving similar functions in a weird way, but they're like. They're not doppelgangers because it's not like one is the bad version of the other, but they, they're they so very much linked in their like, creation and what their character purpose is. And so it, it in a weird way, in, in an emotional way or in a um, kind of series-wide way, it makes sense for it, it to be impossible to parse between the two in terms of whose series is this. Mm-hmm. But in like a pure structural sense or like a storytelling sense... It is kind of a mess to be like, we're just going to stop with our main character for two season, two episodes. We're going to go deal with and treat this as like a mini season. Yeah, we're going to have literally, yeah, I said, the halfway season of Mandalorian. Someone who is just following Mandalorian could probably just watch the last three episodes and, and get enough of it. You might miss out on some of the stuff in the final episode with the pike and the stakes, but it would give you what you need to know to, to move on to the next season of Mandalorian. 
Yeah, and and the final episode made me feel better about them bringing yeah. Mando in and stuff. And I guess there there was maybe some trepidation about the idea of like, well, how do we get Mando into this? If we bring him in, why aren't we giving him more time? This is a streaming show. Nobody's really demanding a tight, you know, ten episode arc. Anyway, it's only seven episodes. We have no real obligation to do anything. And so that's that is kind of the wild west of streaming entertainment is that creators aren't being unless um, unless there's a specific order top down from a studio or a producer. Nobody has to actually adhere to these structures, but at the same time, the structures are useful because they allow you to feel like there's more of a payoff in the end. And I'm not saying that the last episode's not enjoyable. Oh, it's very enjoyable. I, 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 I enjoyed it on a purely just like goofball fun level. <laughs> totally. But but I'm not. I guess like overall, I'm not as satisfied by Book of Boba Fett to, at all, even to the degree that I am with the Mandalorian seasons. And the weirdest thing about that is that. The Mandalorian um, season one, especially, is like so tightly structured and so focused in on this one character, and each episode is modest to a point and and restrained to a point that I find like really admirable for Star Wars to do. And these early episodes of the Book of Boba Fett are pretty modest, but it doesn't carry throughout the whole season, so you don't get this kind of sustained artistic direction for the whole story. Yeah, you, it's very clearly just a side story to answer some questions, to set up some future things, and to give some payoff in this like smaller stakes conflict on Tatooine. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you a couple of specific uh, questions about aspects of these this series, particularly some of the performances, and uh, before I may we maybe uh, see what were what are some of our like you know, yes, no, highlights, downsides kind of thing. Um, I wanted to ask you about Tamara Morrison's performance as Boba Fett. What did you think? It's good. Um, I don't think he's like an exceptional actor. I've always liked him, but I I made a note. I think I might have texted you about this earlier in the show, and it's like, it's kind of strange to have him as a leading man all of a sudden because he's never really been a leading man in anything that I've seen him in. He's always yeah. this kind of dependable character actor. And so he's not an actor who even his performance style pulls a lot of uh, limelight onto him and which plays to Boba Fett as a character in the sense that he's he just lets his actions do the talking and he has no interest in trying to like win you in. But compare it to Pedro Pascal and there is a clear lack yeah. between the two. <laughs> I'm always amazed how Pedro Pascal is able to emote so much without ever, even when he doesn't take his helmet off. Right? Yeah. It's just like... I could never imagine anyone else playing Mando. Like, it's so clear, just from his vocal performance and his body language, who this character is and what he thinks. And that's not to take away from Tamara Morrison, but it's, he's a different kind of character. I did enjoy how grizzled he is. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Tamara Morrison at this point is, you know, much older than he was when he played Jango Fett in Attack of the Clones. But uh, I, I did see one... Twitter person I, I follow call him Boba Hoskins for his like a Bob Hoskins kind of uh, <laughs> grizzled and having just recently watched rewatched uh, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit I'm like I, I can see it yeah, a little bit of that in there um, but uh, the other thing that I think Tamara Morrison lends is credibility in, in certain things right he he is uh, of Maori uh, ancestry and I think that episode two with the Tuscan Raiders and the the relationship of Boba Fett to the Tuscans and how they uh, attempt to to give them some depth and situate them as essentially the indigenous peoples of Tatooine in in relation to the settlers and the the empire and the criminal element 
I think if if the actor playing Boba Fett had not been indigenous person himself, it may have played a little more uh, off. I think it might yeah. have rubbed some people the wrong way, and so he he does lend it some some legitimacy through that in no, a, in I, a strange way. No, I agree, and but I also don't think it's just like a token thing. It's it's not. No, like, it's intentional. I think it's not. No, but it's not also like the fact that Tamora Morrison being Maori allows them to make this anti-colonial comment in their Tuscan story. It actually seems, um, it's the, it probably has the most emotional and like thematic depth of the stuff in the season mm-hmm. where it, it offers a true like revisionist Western look in the Star Wars universe. And because Morrison plays, it doesn't condescend to the material in any way and seems um, adept at navigating that, those kind of displays on screen, it actually works very well. Yeah. Like the, the 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 performance of ritual, the 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 crafting of the gaffy stick is a great scene. Yeah, you know. So I just wanted to draw attention to that performance. Um, the other big sort of controversial performance here is the I don't know if you want to call what do you want to call it deep fake Mark Hamill. Yeah, the CGI uh, Mark CGI Hamill. Mark Hamill. Which setting aside any moral qualms people have about this, we we've hashed it over about Rogue One and. Uh, even other uh, films that have done this, but well, it, it wasn't as fully emotive as it could be if if, if Mark Hamill uh, was able to actually fully embody the role. Um, it is pretty, uh, vis- it's pretty stunningly um, compelling. It, it looks like it, right? Like it's I think super impressive it's technology. a very impressive technology, <laughs> and th- the fact that they, you know, it's not just a a cameo like in Episode Six. Luke Skywalker has, I think, more screen time than any of the other characters in the episode aside from Grogu. No, it's true. Um, I heard that they apparently, at, so on the season finale of Mando season two, when mm-hmm. Luke shows up, this guy did this like YouTube fan edit, and he's like, I corrected the face of it because I'm like, I know how to use deepfake stuff better. They hired him at Lucas mm-hmm. at ILM, and he worked on this, and so well, that's why it, this it looks, looks a little bit better. It looks than even that. better, yeah. Yeah, it's and. Yeah, I, I don't really care about this, and I don't understand people being so aghast, like it's some kind of sick thing. It's a different thing if it's a dead person. It really, the Peter Cushing thing is a different thing. Because here it's like, if you're paying Mark Hamill, and Mark Hamill's like, go for it, I don't care. Yeah. Do it. Like, he got, he got what, credited for it, he is... No, exactly, yeah, and people are like, well, we, we don't have actors, we don't... It's like, oh, it's such a, it's such a like, moral, wishy-washy thing. It's like, but we already have fully CGI performances... We're already completely beyond that window of like what is real in camera and what's not. So yeah, so what if a computer did like some of the lines? I just don't know like what is the moral standing aside from them just being like what I think what it is trying to do is some people being um, uncomfortable on aesthetic level, mm-hmm. and they have to because they are not comfortable ever just being like that's a issue with taste. That's an issue of like I don't like that as like a film storytelling. They always have to couch personal preference in some kind of like moral yeah. take. And so it's like I have to justify that like actually it's not just that this is off or creepy to me, it's that it's bad. And it's like Yeah. Ah, there's lots of other stuff that Well Disney but that does. that I mean that gets into a whole larger question. No. I think I think you're actually on the right track because moral issues and issues of uh it maybe if you were talking about like primal emotions inside out style disgust or uh, a visceral reaction in that way can be a uh, a hint of moral, but it's not sufficient, and mm-hmm. and it never, you know, I think that you know we could get into a whole long talk about the history of disgust being used to cloak moral 
um, yeah. you know, issues. Um, yeah. But, I, I, you know, that episode directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, who seems to specialize now in the, the sort of... She did the fifth one. She, she did the, the fifth si- one. The sixth okay. one's Dave Filoni. Oh, Filoni. Amazing. Great. Yeah. Okay, That's why the tone up. has but that lightness. Yeah. But they, you know, bringing back these directors from the, the first, uh, mm. second season of Mandalorian, uh, that also ties it the more clearly visually and tonally to those series, right? That's why I keep saying it's like season two and a half of <laughs> Mandalorian, right? Um, yeah. But it also sets up this sort of secondary major choice at the end of episode six, right? Whether Grogu is going to choose the way of the Jedi or the way of the Mandalorian, which drove our family nuts. <laughs> Everyone was like, why is Luke repeating the, the, the errors of the past that the Jedi all perpetuated? But here's another thing. This sets up a really important point, which is that one of the unspoken things at the end of season two of The Mandalorian is that if Grogu goes off to train with Luke Skywalker, would die with is ben Grogu going to be killed by Ben? Yeah. yeah. So this, this, this avoids that. But you also get that great flashback. I loved the flashback to when Luke asks Grogu, do you want to remember your, your early childhood? Yeah. And you get a flashback to Revenge of the Sith, the attack on the Jedi Temple and the Purge of the Jedi. And that, you know, Grogu's shaken by that yeah. image of the clone troopers and Jedi being cut down. That's, see, that's a, that episode, um, just taking aside all the, like, emotional reactions to the Hamill mm-hmm. CGI and stuff. Filoni's really good at, because uh, he understands the series so well, he knows when to tap into a, a thing. And it's not just a point of fan service. It's like, that's, it's like if we're going to have an idea of key traumatic episode within like a Jedi character, or a char- that's the moment in the series you have to point back to because that's the thing where everything shatters from what they're trying to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is that we already know Luke screws up with his Jedi temple. So even though I still kind of wish it was, you know, New Jedi Academy, all that stuff from, like, the expanding universe and Luke being, you know, on Yavin and having, like, his awesome school and everything works quite well for the most part, I understand Luke basically making up as going along and these kind of decisions would lead to the bitter Luke that they presented in Last mm-hmm. Jedi being like, why talk about Jedi anymore? It always ends in ruin. Yeah. And it also, I think, will establish something important for Ahsoka Tano in her spinoff stuff. Mm-hmm. Her, uh, as we get the the return of Ahsoka Tano. So maybe maybe we could go through. There's a lot of fan, like fun cameos of, of popular characters. Um, some from Mandalorian, some from elsewhere in the uh, Star Wars universe. Um, why don't you? What are what are a couple of your favorite little? Uh, references or, or characters who who return in Boba Fett. Hmm. I mean it's it's nice seeing Amy Sedaris hanging out <laughs> from yeah. the Mandalorian. She's pretty funny. I was going to say she's she is very funny and she 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 pulls it <laughs> off really well. Especially I actually like her scenes with Grogu all the time. Oh yeah. Hey little guy. <laughs> she yeah, there seems to be such affection which yeah. um, it's nice to have a character on screen who seems to be mirroring what most of the people watching yeah. are where it's like such extreme um, protectiveness of them. I'll give one that I really like, even though I guess it's not really a... It's a bit of a, a combination of a, a, a character type from Return of the Jedi and a Robert Rodriguez, which is Danny Trejo as the new <laughs> Rancor Keeper. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, explaining that Rancors are actually very, uh, lo- you know, loving creatures that can uh, bond with someone, which, of course, then pays off. You know, if oh, you're going to... It's, it's very Chekhov if you're going to show a Rancor and... 
early in the season, you got to pay it off in the finale. The finale where he's like he's riding the Rancor. He's just everything in that finale was so. So I'd I'd seen No Way Home recently, and I was like, man, that's a lot of fan service. And then I'm watching this episode, and I'm like chuckling to myself. I'm like, yeah, okay, good, good. You're at, I'm like, you, you can't tease having the Rancor and then Boba being like, I want to learn to ride it. Yeah. And then not have him actually riding ride it, the Rancor, yeah. fighting the Scorpion droids. Those things, yeah. And then you get the giant giant robot versus giant monster battle in the middle of Mos Espa. Yeah, the kaiju stuff, as you said, that yep. is sweet. So just to wrap it, like, I, my take on it is, like, I thought Boba Fett was fun. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the best show on TV. It's not, like, a show that's going to make any of my top ten lists or anything, but I very diverting 40 to 50 minutes for seven episodes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, if they bring another season of Boba Fett, I'll watch it. It was fun. I just don't... I. I just have some problems with like setting up um, TV shows as so structurally muddy. But mm-hmm. before we wrap up, I guess like, I I feel like there's a lot of good or bad on some things. I'm gonna hit, I'm sure you have a list of some yep. things you want to go through. Sure, you might have overlap with mine. But like, just say whether you like it or don't, or whether you think it fits or not. So. The flashback structure. He goes into the back to tank. He has a flashback. The fact that every time he goes in there, it's a flashback. It's a bit uh, mechanical in its structure, but I was fine with it. I was like, oh, he's got to go back. And but because there's an interesting thing where he's literally healing his body, but he's also processing his past at the same yeah. time. So it's very therapeutic. It's very therapeutic, like in all senses. Exactly. It also reminds me of the first two panels of a comic book issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Where it's like. Continuing from the last one, he's still in the tank. Remember, this is some honestly sometimes more comic booky than uh, most superhero movies. Are. It is. All right, um, the mods. <laughs> My least favorite part of the the, the season. Not you know the they they uh, the the dude who does the cyber work is kind of cool. Who who create who helps create Fennec, save Fennec and stuff. But those those cyber, but the they're I think it's their bright shiny Vespas and the fact that they're so obviously young like teens from today feels like it feels like some somebody dropped out an archie comic into like the middle of Boba Fett, which again fits with the sort of weird comic tone but i'm i, I didn't yeah. really love it although i did love steven root's cameo in the one episode yeah i, I enjoyed seeing steven root i think the mods are really funny they don't fit in this they um very much remind me of the foundation prequel novels when there's like the planet of street toughs <laughs> with like cybernetic augmentation yeah. it seems like the it's it's pulled from classic sci-fi, yeah. not necessarily from Star Wars sci-fi. And the Vespa thing is like so hilariously obvious, <laughs> even the colors. I know. All right, um, the Hut twins, the giant, the cousins of Jabba. Love them. I think they're great. <laughs> All right, um, this one I, th- I think it's obvious. The Wookiee, Chrysanthemum. Every- everyone loves Chrysanthemum. <laughs> We're so glad that he didn't die. <laughs> yeah, it's. You can't you can't introduce a Wookiee and then off him. You have to use him because Wookiees are too cool. Exactly. When they, it seemed like for a second they were just gonna let him go, I was like, no, no, he has to join the gang and fight with Boba Fett. Okay, I was gonna I was gonna say the the CGI Luke, but we've already kind of dealt with that. Um, Cad Bane, who's in Bad Batch, and Clone I think Wars. he's genuinely cool and menacing villain and in live action he his his voice his mannerism he's a full-on lee van cleef from good the bad and the ugly type character you know with the flat hat and he's like very like sort of taciturn and like uh great sharpshooter you know we and i ex- hated him extra when he he guns down Cobb vance one of everyone's favorite characters <laughs> yeah i was very 
happy to see that Cobb Vanth is not dead at, or he's being like revived at the end of the yeah. the little credit scene. I was a little sad that they killed off Cad Bane though, because or I, you know, we think they killed him off because he actually is such a cool yeah. um, antagonist and he just fits the Western. So like he's such a Western character to the point where he's it's almost like he's over the top yeah. in how Western is, but because he's so over the top, he hits every single element of the gunslinger, and you're like, that's cool. <laughs> totally. And and he plays into, for fans of uh, Clone Wars and Bad Batch, you know, which sets up a backstory even between him and Fett and him and Fennec Shan as well. All right, and the final thing is, yeah, the Rancor. Love the Rancor. <laughs> so, Rancors are super cool. Uh, my only question is whether we're going to get a hint of... Uh, the, you know, they, they mentioned the, the Witches of Dathomir and the, the origin of the Rancor there. It's like, oh, are we going to get at some point? Uh, I was wondering whether we'd get uh, Darth Maul or anything like that here. That's, yeah, one of my biggest questions is that if there's a season two, do we get Darth Maul and do we get Kira from the Solo movie? Mm-hmm. Because with the Black Hand or whatever, what, or whatever that organization, the criminal organization is. I will spend more time with it. You should. They can become very loving. I thought they were bred just to fight. They're powerful fighters, so that is what most know. But they form strong bonds with their owners. It is said that the witches of Dapamir even rode them through the forest and fens. I want to learn to ride this one. You what? I want to ride it. Ridden beast ten times its size. Teach me. It will take a tremendous amount of discipline. We begin today. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Hope you'll catch, um, tune in for the regular episodes and read us on the website. Goodbye, Mr. Moore. I bid you farewell. <laughs>